0: Good morning Isle of Faces listeners, this is Sir Buckley talking to you from very, very hot England, uh, sweltering England. You might be able to hear my slightly even more annoyingly nasal or stuffed up voice because hay fever is still in the air, the pollen is still coming to get me, so do forgive me if I sound even worse than usual. Today is part 5 of History of Westros's uh, Valar Avidis project and this is your companion podcast, Scraps and Scrolls, where we go through all the notes that didn't make it into Aziz and the Shares live stream this past Sunday. Before we begin, some slight housekeeping, not too much. One small plug. A couple of days ago, I was lucky enough to guest on Radio Westross's uh, extra bonus quiz podcasts, uh, whatever they call called, trivia podcasts. So firstly, a lot of fun, honoured to be part of Radio Westeros, along with History of Westeros, that was the uh, podcast that first got me into all of this, all the fandom, so been listening to them for years, so that was great to hang out with Lady Gwyn again after we helped out Aziz with reviewing Season 8, so that was fun. You can go and find that and all the very fun, sometimes very difficult questions that Lady Gwyn had, uh, and please do let me know your score because I am a competitive fool. I do want to know. I'm not going to tell you my score, because one, I had the answers in front of me, and two, I still didn't get 100%. Moving on, special announcement today, two things. Firstly, today is very, very busy. I'm talking to you Tuesday morning, it's just turned noon, um, because obviously, recording this episode for you, and then editing that and getting that one out. Also, later today, finally, recording with Lauren, Shakes of Thrones, so that'll be with you soon, very, very exciting, hopefully, maybe the weekend he says foolishly, hopefully, what a, uh, what a boy of summer I am, really. But also today uh, can confirm, hooray! Isle the faces Patreon, patron, Patreon? I don't. see so, you see how new I am to this. Anyway, sound the um, celebration music. Ta-da! Yes, Isle of faces has joined Patreon, and you can obviously join our Patreon. Also. You can become a green man and woman of, man or woman, of are the other Faces Patreon. And I will not uh, bore you all with exactly what each tier brings you, because there's a lot on offer, but let me at least tell you of our different tiers that we're offering, because we're very excited, we'd like, uh, really appreciate all the support and love we've got over the past, when did we start? November. It's really... Taken off, as you know, we'd started just as the guest episodes and then season 8 came along. Now we've got Valor Reedus with History of Westeros. Lady Buckley will be back for extra episodes. We're going to be making Patreon-only episodes with some returning guests. I won't give anything away just yet. With some special subjects, extra little bonus content. But anyway, these tiers, there's five of them. I'm not sure why I chose five. And I was tempted to... Do some kind of wordplay on green men and women. But in the end, I went for trees. Because one, I like trees. I live in the country. They're cool. Two, they are the faces full of trees. Mm, Connections. So our first tier then will be our grassy roots people. That's $1 or pound. I don't know how it works. um, A month for those people. Because you can't survive without your roots, can you? And uh, we're going to make them... Nice and grassy. There's going to be a green theme. You can see because the next level is our lime leaves. Yes, five dollars or more. Every good tree needs some pretty leaves. They're only really going to show us off. We can't wait. Jade branches. They support the leaves. They keep us going. What what would a tree be without branches? Really, and yes, jade is kind of greenish, but more greenish is actual green because green trunks is next up. That's twelve dollars or more. Obviously, the main part, the main structure of our trees Mm. and finally it's just the whole thing emerald trees that sounds cool and emerald always makes me think of uh, Sonic the hedgehog and the early ones but i digress emerald trees 18 dollars and more lots and lots on offer there we'll be putting all that up later twitter on the website growingstone.co.uk you can have a look there there's early access to episodes there's getting involved with polls and deciding what we do in the future Uh, There's different kinds of shout-outs you can get. I'll let you read all that later. Um, But yeah, really excited. We'd love if any of you could, if any of you wish to join us on whatever tier, we're happy to have all of you. We love all our tree parts equally. Um, And I am aware that actually the faces is full of weirwoods, which have (laughs) different coloured leaves and uh, branches and chunks, but that's a bit sombre. We're going green. Green it is for us. So yes, please do let us know what you think about that, whether we've got it completely wrong and we need to start again, whether we're dead on, got everything right and you can't wait to sign up, whatever it is, we're really excited to grow the other Faces family, put some goals in and, you know, just take the podcast higher and higher because the more uh, energy I and Lady Buckley can put into it, then the more we can give back to the fandom that the podcast is about. So... I Also, just before we get started with Valor Readers, I will quickly say thank you to everyone who sent us congratulations and likes on our tweets about my and Lady Buckley's uh, one year, first year anniversary of our wedding, because that was uh, very, very heartfelt. I won't go into it now, because it'll take a whole episode. Uh, in fact, funnily enough, first Patreon episode, eh? First Patreon only episode will be the return of Lady Buckley, in which we, in celebration of our one year anniversary, will be looking at all the big weddings of A Song of Ice and Fire. We've not recorded that yet, it's still to come, but it should be good, so there you go, Patreon only, hint and have a look at those tears. Anyway, sorry for hijacking that slightly. Today, Valar part five, after a slight break, because even the Shay were back, and they were covering... Let me read them off for you here. Danny 3, Bran 4, Eddard 5, John 4, Eddard 6, Catelyn 5 and Sansa 2. And they did, in the end, add their own um, Friends or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia type titles. And I've never seen Uh, It's Only Sunny in Philadelphia. So it's only It's always Sunny in Philadelphia. So I'm going to have to stick to Friends titles and they're probably still not going to be as funny. Head right into it. Daenerys 3. Now, I should say... As he's gonna they had so much. They found so much foreshadowing stuff in all these chapters. Uh, not too much to notice, but overall for today, so they actually didn't need a lot of my notes. So I've got bunches left over for you guys. Um, I probably won't even be able to get to them all. So someone might have to start a third podcast here to get my leftover notes going. No, not not really. I wouldn't subject anyone to that. I'm just gonna have to cut a few out and try and keep it concise. But um, obviously, if you haven't. And I'm I'm fairly certain all of you have. Check out the the live stream from Sunday with Aziz and Share because they really do get some really good um, foreshadowing takes or what they call foul foul shadowing, foul shadowing, kind of foreshadowing that was and then didn't come to be based on George's early thinking. But anyway, give it a look because they really did get a lot in this episode. But as for leftover notes, okay, so we're going right down, down the document. Here we are, Daenerys 3. Now, in an early Danny chapter, when she first, when she was actually marrying Carl Drogo, she got her wedding gift of the the silver, the horse, and you know she went for a little ride around the camp, and she had this exhilarating feeling and kind of uh, f- feeling freedom and her own power and her own control for the first time. And we get a little bit more on that with her horse riding in in this chapter. And again, it's that control that she's been denied her whole childhood. It's really making her feel alive and feeling in the first time she's really had any kind of. She's holding the reins of the horse and of herself for the first time, that kind of thing. And that is especially. It doubles up because this society, it obviously, it values horse riding very highly. So it's getting her involved with this new family. Uh, that we spoke about before it's really her integrating into this society is an important thing and both of those feelings the the control and the immersion into Dothraki society that in turn uh, you can see is right after how she she has this little ride around that she first starts feeling and acting like a Gleeson you know giving the commands to Jorah and obviously what happens with Viserys later in the chapter that's all a knock-on effect from this control and this um the self-confidence that she's got from riding the silver because, you know, obviously self-confidence and stuff like that, again, not really feeling she's used to. So she's really getting into she's really getting into her own very quickly here and it's good how George is able to do that in just three chapters already. Aziz and show they mentioned about, uh, you know, the lemurs and how we go very quickly past Norvos and Kohor and, you know, it's, it's very easy to forget because it's so early on in the story and we never go back there again we get just these quick little hints like lemurs and uh, the guys had some, did some extra digging found up for the world book, etc and I, I do wonder whether we'll get the chance to ever go back there Kohol, Norvus, or that kind of northern Essos. I suppose it is possible because Daenerys we would think would be going back to off Rack, which is kind of on the level-ish with those but obviously far more east she could just head straight west and hit those kind of areas again or I mean suppose Aya or Davos maybe could go east from Bravos or Skagos and head there but I wouldn't bet too much on it so that might be all we really get even though we've obviously met uh, many more Novosi and Cahorish characters as, as we've gone on so at least we get the characters I think that's the most important thing it's very much a chapter of discovery for Daenerys. I think probably each one is, but especially early on. But uh, this one, we really get Daenerys discovering this world that we just said these are new places for her, new exotic places. And, you know, Daenerys isn't someone who's been locked in a room her whole life. She's been to different cities along, along that uh, western coast of Essos, along the three cities. But now she's out in the wild. She's out and, you know, it's one thing going from place to place in a litter and, you know, under hood and cow, but now she's out on her own, she can really interact with the world, and there's this great quote that I'll read you now. The green swallowed her up, the air was rich with the scents of earth and grass, mixed with the smell of horseflesh and Danny's sweat and the oil in her hair, Dothraki smells. They seemed to belong here. Danny breathed it all in, laughing. She had a sudden urge to feel the ground beneath her, to curl her toes in that thick black soil. Swinging down from her saddle, she let the silver graze while she pulled off her high boots. So you can see there, she says it's dead on, Dothraki smell, she's getting involved, she's becoming Dothraki, it's laid out bare for us. But also she's becoming one with the, with the earth, and you know she wants to get the mud between her toes and just kind of be a part of it all. And again, that kicks off the discoveries, the other discoveries that come in this chapter... Okay, she's discovered the Earth, but she's also discovering what it means to be part of a family. And I don't think we're going to count her relationship with Viserys' as family. I mean, the overall, the large clan family of the Dothraki. She f- finds out what it's like to have power over someone with Viserys later on. The complete switch of that relationship and that dynamic. She discovers pleasure and sex. And also she discovers that Viserys actually is quite weak. So she's really flipping flipping the script. And it comes from this willingness to finally open herself up to new experiences. There's an interesting line uh, a little bit later on. Uh, It says, When the moon kisses the sun. I find that interesting. This is a bit tinfoil y, but isn't it not weird that the Starks, with all their direwolf connections and their, you know, the wolf in general connections, they never really get connected or related to the moon, despite, you know, there's obviously the wolves like to howl at the moon thing. No one ever says anything that I can remember. The problem. Maybe there is, but off the top of my head, I can't remember Starks being related to the moon somehow. Um, I just wonder if this is some hint. I doubt it, but it might be some hint about Jon and Daenerys. If Jon is the moon and Daenerys, one day they kiss. Uh, we, we've seen it in the show. Maybe I'm way off base there. Feel free to tell me if you think so. I know as he's uh, touched on Illyro wanting... Uh, Viserys to stay at the manse, and I had some thoughts on that also I think he probably did want Viserys to stay stay back in Pentos because you only have to talk to Viserys for five, ten minutes to know he would re- easily piss off Drogo and the Dothraki in general and probably only make it a day or two we know later on Illyrio says he thought Daenerys would die of the Dothraki probably looking at it after he saw them interact probably didn't think Viserys would last that long either so it probably make more sense to keep him stashed in pentos otherwise the whole thing is just a waste you're not going to get your dothraki invasion that way are you but then again having said that it also doesn't seem terribly put out when Viserys does go so maybe that just suggests that phaseris is really never the be-all and end-all for iliro and Viserys' plots for fake hagon and what comes in dance probably would be a bad idea to put all your eggs in the Faceris basket, considering he's just a bit cracked. Going on that as well, it would be interesting to think if Viserys had been able to check his ego and his um, high and mighty act, if he had been able to just make some concessions and just dress like a Dothraki or, you know, just these little things. He's not really being asked that much of him. And if he had been able to do it and survive, at least survive, even if he didn't, you know, rule them or get exactly what he wanted, he may well have gone on to marry Arianne Martel, as per the original plan that had been going, that had been sealed, all that stuff that we find out in Feast and Dance. And he did that. Really does bear a lot of thinking about it. We're not going to spend our time here because we could go on all day, but, oh, Viserys, if only you had. But he didn't. So on then to uh, Brand four. There wasn't that much in that Daenerys chapter, so we're going to go quickly. Oh, I didn't give it a... Um, thingy did I and uh, I've not looked specifically at Aziz and the Shaya's titles so if I do copy them by accident my my apologies uh, Daenerys 3 is the one the one with the toes in the soil that's what I'll call it on to brand 4 which we'll call the one with the brothers 2 Yeah, I'm going to get poetic with these titles now I'm going to try and outdo Aziz and the Shaya which is a losing battle but i'll give it a go okay so brand four then this open line is in the yard below rickon ran with the wolves so straight away i think we're getting maybe a little hint about obviously rickon become he's the wildest star because you know he's still young and he hasn't really been taught how to uh, act yet and because his mother and father get taken away from him he's, he's Seems like he's not going to learn. Osha is his teacher now, and him being a wildling, he's going to have some wildness about him. Uh, so maybe this is just hinting about that future and what we expect. Maybe Davos to find on uh, Skagos, Skagos, and what what Rickon will be like now. Even though he's still going to be very young, he's not going to. Be, it's not going to be like in the show where he goes from uh, don't know, seven or eight to seemingly 13, 14. He's still going to be what six something like that so yeah maybe just a quick hint there it's interesting because if we journey back to Bran's last POV which is the one of his free uh, eyed crow dream so obviously that's very high fantasy and there's all prophecy and all these um, things you can pick out and dream of it's very very ethereal and so we've gone from that to straight back into reality we get dumped right back into it there's none of those dreams really in this chapter it's not a kind of overall. we're back on the ground one-on-one relationships matters of state focusing on what's actually happening now and bran is in a bad way and it's sad to think but maybe he doesn't even realize all the implications of his injury yet and we're talking about you know when he gets older and obviously in terms of reproduction stuff like that for now Brian is thinking well you know he can't move and obviously he can't be involved with on and the Wolves downstairs and climbing like he normally does but that's only one facet of it he obviously has much bigger uh, knock on effects for later and reproduction and airs and how he's going to be valued by potential matches obviously we know that that's not actually going to matter much anyway because he journeys north to the across the wall but in theory, if he had stayed down and everything had worked out, he'd become a second son and just how he would have been seen. So that's sad to think that Bran would have had to come and realise that at some point. And to skip ahead to the end of the chapter where uh, you know, Rob is crying in Bran's uh, chambers, I'd always thought that ending of Rob crying was more about him taking the opportunity to take off the Lord's face. You know, we keep calling it a Lord's face, like Eddard for a second. And just be a 14-year-old kid, missing his mum and weighed down by his responsibilities. But on reread and thinking about these knock-on effects that Bran hasn't thought about, Rob probably has clicked a bit further than his younger brother about what the future is going to hold for Bran. So I suppose maybe a factor... I still do think he's uh, taking off the Lord's face and misses his mum and is weighed down. But I think Rob probably is also upset for Bran and... You know, he's probably feeling guilty that he can still walk around, and he is going to go on and marry and do all these things. Uh, so he's got a mix of guilt and sympathy for Bran about these as yet unseen implications. As uh, mentioned, my uh, that I'd been reading Storm of Swords next to this, and I happened to read Hoster's death in the same time I reread this Bran chapter. So it's a good comparison, and I do think this chapter gives us our best look at Rob so far, overall in all facets. Both boys, they're f- being thrown into new roles. And even, even if Bran hadn't fallen, but had still remained at Winterfell for some reason, you know, he would have been cast aside anyway by Rob's new responsibilities. He, Rob has got not got time to be a brother right now with Ned and Catelyn away and everything going on. He's got to learn on the fly and do it all very quickly. So Bran would have been out of his mind anyway. But now that's doubled up because Bran can't physically be there so he's just stuck in a room. at least you know bram probably would have been quite happy climbing around he might have even been uh, quite glad that no one's paying him attention because he could have gone gone and done anything but now that restricted feeling or that forgotten feeling is just doubled up and the weight on rob's again 14 year old shoulders it's, it's unimaginable really it's easy to just cast it off if we think back to when we were 14 i sure as hell no i wouldn't have been able to do any of this? Not that I think I can do what any character anywhere in Westeros does. I'd I last about five minutes, but especially this—it's not—it's um, not an easy burden to bear. And let's not forget—he's it's not—it's not an easy act. It's not an easy act to follow Ned, who is you know pretty much the perfect lord. He's actually cast an awfully large shadow. He's actually cast an awfully large shadow for Rob to step into. And and if we had got that Rob pov that george has um lamented on sometimes we would have been able to see a lot more of that obviously but to be fair for my money considering everything he has to do and how often he has to be proving himself to people around the castle and to lewin and even though they're on his side he's still got to, he would obviously feel as a teenage boy would that he's got to act the part and prove himself and that's not even counting all the grown-up ruffled bearded lords he's visiting. Um I know he's not going too far from one first not like he's going to last half or car holder or anything just yet, but still, these are Normans. Um I think he does a bang up job and it lets me forgive the couple of incidents where the weight becomes too much to bear and he does crack and lose it and act the child we see later in the chapter. I suppose at least Rob was being trained for his big change he always knew at some point he would have to do these jobs probably thought it'd be a lot later not for not at 14 but he did know at one point he would have to ride around and command everyone and everything else and ned had been training him for that whereas bran he doesn't get his dreams of knighthood or even the promises in that dream from his previous chapter they're apparently gone he's not got any follow-up on those so bran hasn't been trained for being crippled and uh, being forgotten. This is all really new for him. And if things had ended up differently, if not all these uh, different forces has converged on Winterfell, Bran very easily could have stayed. You know, really, truly bitter like he is at this. The beginning, he gets a bit, bit better through the chapter. He's kind of saved by Rob and even Tyrion a little bit. But he really could have gone down a dark path of this. Maybe that's something similar to Euron I don't think we can I think we're all gonna agree that Bran doesn't have it in him to become Euron but maybe it is just different families what saved Bran even though half of them aren't even present at the moment whereas whatever happened to Euron you know he wasn't crippled or anything but uh, yeah we won't we won't go too much into Euron It it gives us the shivers it's interesting as well we always think I always try and think about how George is laying out these chapters why he puts them in specific orders We've gone from a chapter about uh, Daenerys learning to adjust and how those adjustments benefit her and she's quite successful at it to Bran really struggling to adapt to his new reality. They're both entering things that are new for them and Daenerys doing quite well, Bran less so even though she is actually in a, a new environment and Bran is in the same place he's always been. And, but yet yeah, it, it is new. And anyone out there who's... Uh, Been unfortunate to either be put into a wheelchair or have a relative have to use one that didn't before. Everything completely changes. When Lady Buckley, a couple of years ago, she had to use one for six months, and it was like we were living in a new town because you suddenly realize all these hazards and obstacles were there that you didn't think of before. You know, just steps to get into shops and stuff like that. And, you know, that's in modern times. So imagine for Bran, I doubt anyone's particularly. when they're building Winterfell they're probably not really thinking about making it all access so we know how lucky he has had to have Hodor around to you know, have that basket and everything else. So even though he's lived there and he probably knows Winterfell better than most people because he's been climbing on the rooftops for however long now it is very very different place to him Early on in the chapter we get some good old Nan stories uh, Aziz and the Shea really looked into exactly what was in those stories and Uh, trying to figure out what that means to the future. Great job as always. I was thinking actually about Old Nan herself and (laughs) a bit of an emotional thought but I wonder if Old Nan puts so much stock and faith in these continued stories comes through as kind of the ramblings of an old woman but she obviously cares and has memorised all these stories that mean a lot to her and I wonder if that's because all of the characters in her own life and her own story They've all drifted away and moved away or died, so these stories, apart from Hodor, they kind of seem to be what she has left. And you know, it does get said old stories can be like old friends, so maybe she just likes revisiting them from time to time. She certainly seems to get some kind of uh, joy out of retelling Bran and all these stock children, all these stories. So yeah, a bit of bit of sadness for old man there. We've also got a thing of Rob. We said before that John he gets these lessons in leadership from Donald Noy and John uh, Mormon and Eamon Targaryen eventually. And Rob, we, we can imagine, is getting the same thing from Lewin and those that are left to him, probably Lewin mainly. So he's taking on those lessons in the same way that Rob is, uh, in the same way that John is. Looking at the chapter as a, as a whole, we're transitioning from beginning to end. So it starts off with those old Nan stories about the long night, and it slowly moves into Tyrion arriving. And that's a nice little connection because Tyrion, just a minute ago, was actually on top of the wall and contemplating what could have been out there. And obviously the Long Night, that's all above the wall. And Tyrion, who's quite um, disparaging of all those tales, I'm sure we can imagine the kind of thing he'd think about Old man's stories. But for a moment there, while he was on that wall, he was thinking, uh, maybe there is something else. Maybe there is, it's not just... uh, snarks and grumpkins or whatever he calls them so that's a nice little connection as for Tyrion, then the first time readers really you could be forgiven that you could still suspect that Tyrion is involved somehow in this cat's paw uh the attempted murder on bran obviously we've got his pov so probably not but we're not 100 percent sure what he and the lannisters are up to or his level of involvement so it's a very tense scene what comes out of it is a small hint of what could have actually been between certain Starks and certain Lannisters, if not for these past strings that they're always dancing on as um as Tyrion puts it. And if we cast our mind back to I think it was part three of Valoridas, of the like Lannister luncheon, Marcella and Tom and they were really sweet about Bran and not wanting anything bad to happen to him. So we get that kind of childlike innocence and in a way, even though Tyrion's not a child, there's that same connection where you know they could have all been friends if not for what's going on between their parents or their elder siblings and the the external forces of the world get get involved. It's nice to remember, really nice Tyrion. He's just doing Bran a favor with this saddle. He's helping out Jon. He's helping out Bran. He's even kind of teaching Rob a little lesson. Uh, and it's just nice to remember and considering the Tyrion we end up with after Storm and what he goes through. In, uh, in dance. It's good to have these memories because we'll soon be leaving them. The chapter overall is fairly dark but this saddle giving allows it to close on a high in the same way that Danny's does or at least just before the ending there's a at least a rise in the chapter. Bran gets to feel a little bit better. Then it goes a bit bad again at the ending. It does speak to the strength of the spark strength of the sparks strength of the Starks. Other great families they have siblings vying against each other even going to war against each other. I don't think we need to go through the list, but Greyjoy and Lannister, Baratheon, none of them are great friends. And I mean, to be fair, we don't know what would have happened if all the Starks had stayed there and grown up together. They probably would have rubbed each other the wrong way at points, but we can assume they wouldn't be fighting wars against each other. And you can see Robb and Bran propping each other up instead of taking each other down. It was a very emotional scene right at the end and for us re-readers we know that Rob's promises to Bran about you know seeing mother and writing out to John and etc cetera, etc cetera, they're not going to come true it's going to get worse Rob's going to get taken away and this nice little relationship between brother and brother that we've been lucky enough to see isn't going to last a little while longer yet but not not too much and then Bran really is going to be kind of alone a mm. bit dark on to edard five then the first two ed chapters today and this is i think we can we just have to call it the one of Picel, don't we the one of <laughs> pisell's resume uh he does see a lot of he talks to iron little finger also in this chapter but i think that's probably what we remember it to is just long chit chat with Picel and his long beard and like i say i apologize if uh, because me and SCs were trying out something slightly different in the document so if i do overlap with uh, anything mentioned on the live stream, then bear with me, I'm still figuring it out but probably not anyway, um, Pysel, this, this chat he has with Ned it's either, there's two possibilities either George hadn't quite figured out all the pieces to the John Aaron murder and how everyone figures into it, which I I don't think I can really buy into or Grandmaster Pysel is a literal moron which we can probably all agree is the more likely scenario. You know, you he, he really can't lay out the connections of John Aaron's murder more clearly, uh, giving Ned the book and telling him what his last words were and um, the stuff he says about his illness. How easy would it have been just to say, you know, John Aaron did get whatever sickness other old people get and yeah that's expecting you know he could have even said that he'd seen symptoms throughout the throughout the past couple of months that other people hadn't because he's a grandmaster. he could have even said that john knew he was ill and was coming to him you know he can he can definitely do more than he did here instead of laying it on an actual plate for ned's investigation to continue and you know if he had if he had done that the investigation really stalls out and the Lannister cause would kind of be safe. It's not impossible that Ned f- still figures it all out because there are the sources of information to get these hints from, but Pycelle does help him out a bit. You have to wonder if Cersei, if she had actually put some more trust in Pycelle from the beginning, they might have accomplished a lot more in King's Landing than they did um, if they'd done that at this early juncture. I guess that kind of speaks to how creepy and weird Pycelle is because Cersei doesn't want to have anything to do with him. But you know, a quick, a quick word with Pycelle at this point, and a few holes could have been patched. That sinking boat might have been a bit, might have sailed a bit fairer. I suppose that does que- cause into question whether Pycelle is loyal to all Lannisters or just certain members. Would he still have helped Cersei out because they do come, they do clash with each other later on, but. Seems at this juncture he was quite willing to try and help her. He thinks he's helping her out. It also makes me question why Cersei didn't actually try and poison slash kill John Aaron. Why wasn't she? You know, Paisal thinks she is. We later find out she isn't, but why wasn't she? You can forgive Pycelle for thinking that. It definitely makes sense that she wants John Aaron dead. It doesn't really make sense for the Cersei we know that she wouldn't have at least t- attempted something rather than let John Aaron sniff ever closer to the truth. I suppose she could have, and we just don't know, and she hasn't referenced it in her own POVs, that she was trying to think of something, but doesn't seem to. Like I say, this this chapter is very much Picel focused and we find out that Picel is incredibly egocentric. He, likes, he lists off his resume, basically, as soon as Ned walks in the door. And we can be forgiven for thinking um, at this early point that his end goal is actually just self-importance. Maybe he's just trying to further himself and wants, you know, fame and comfort more than actually being loyal to any third party. Then again, having said that, that's also a pretty good deflection, self-preservation strategy. You don't need to worry about the guy, you know, he's a Grand Maester, he's got no particular ties, they're not supposed to be on anyone's side. Obviously anyone who's really looked at the history of King's Landing knows that's not true. I don't think that's gonna fool anyone. But if he's just rambling on about the glory days and He's already got this act of being a bit more decrepit than he is and a bit more clueless. So maybe he's just trying to fob Ned off here and, you know, maybe he's trying to fob Ned off here and trick him into thinking that he really does know nothing. Although that would work a lot better if he then didn't turn around and give him the book and all that. It goes from the conversation with Picel to uh, a much nicer conversation for Ned with Aya. And to be fair, what he says about, he tells Aya what she can and can't become and it, does come off as pretty harsh but i like to think that that's ned just being afraid for her Uh, it doesn't work on aya anyway she's far too strong-willed for that but i think ned is just seeing those similarities between her and diana i'm sure he's afraid for both of his children but maybe more so for aya because she's a bit wilder she can get into more trouble as we saw on the king's road so it's just that fear bubbling to the surface and that's why he's a bit harsher i do think these chats they are probably Here's one respite from the working life of the Hand of the King, I think the chapter is set up to reflect that. It's business with Bysel first, nice moment of relief of ire. probably cherishes these little chats that he gets, and it's back to business with Littlefinger. And talking of Littlefinger, we see his buddy-buddy tactic again that we mentioned before in in his interaction with Catelyn. He gets Ned on side, he offers up the information on the Arryn household, Although it occurs to me this probably didn't really cost him anything, considering his involvement with the murder and Lysa and the Arons in general. Littlefinger probably knew, and he might have even arranged the locations of all those members of the household and the Arons servants, so he's not really giving up anything for Ned here. I do think he's correct in telling Ned to be paranoid about who's watching him within the Red Keep and the city in general, that's good advice. Although I do think he also uses it as a way to control Ned. He restricts Ned's feelings of power and his actual physical movements also. But his f- feelings of power, which we've already discussed last week, last time, Ned doesn't really take advantage of his position, and here's Littlefinger playing into that by not letting Ned feel as powerful as he actually is. And I'd put good money on Littlefinger keeping up, keeping an eye on the Tower of the Hand after this conversation to learn that Jory is Ned's trusted man. He says to Ned, don't go yourself, send someone you trust. I think Littlefinger walks right out, turns around, watches who comes out next, and he learns that Jory is Ned's most trusted man. I don't think he actually does anything with that information in this instance, but you can see how Littlefinger worms his way in and figures out households and servants and things that perhaps other uh, nobles don't really think of as valuable information maybe he knows not to try and bribe Jory or get Jory away from Ned um, because it won't work maybe he does because he knows that's the guy who has an influence in Ned's household like I said I don't think any of these things happen in the instance of Ned but we can definitely imagine Littlefinger p- pulling that kind of trick before in years past and getting into certain households that way I'd put even more money on the fact that Littlefinger's probably just pointing at random people naming them a spy when uh, when they have that scene You know, he's, they're at the window, he says that's Cersei's spy, that's Varys' spy, they were watching you I think they're just random people they're just gardeners and people on the wall I think he's pointing saying yeah over there that's Cersei's spy that over there that's Sir Duncan the Tall come back from the dead that one there, that's quaif you don't know her yet but uh, that's her he's just pointing at anyone, I think he's full of rubbish and finally, last note on this first Ned chapter, there's mention of Ned having sweat stains again. We already had that when he first arrived. He's down in the heat of the South. He's very uncomfortable. But I just think it's a nice connection because we also had sweat stains mentioned in Viserys's, uh, in Daenerys' chapter about Viserys. So neither man is comfortable in their current position and where they are. And obviously they both kind of meet the same ending. So that's kind of a little bit telling. Okay, on to John 4 then, which is uh, the one with Sam. I think that's the only way you can really sum this one up. We get to meet Sam, who is obviously uh, a major character for us readers. I'm sure his love of books really endears himself to a lot of us, as well as his importance through the story as we go becomes more and more important. And there's lots of just little notes. I think as these and the show I got all the big ones uh, off my list here, but there's lots of just little little things to started around in this chapter one of them is the fact that sam comes up to um up to castle black with his own armor and his own shield and i just wonder we never get any more mention of that is it still there i'm assuming he didn't take it down with him to uh old town i don't think it's important I, it's not going to come up again it just sounds cool and i want to know where it is we have a fighting scene also with um with john you know going into leadership mode and it's quite cool to get an insight into his thinking when he fights we see this with jamie later on also and some other characters um and just how he recognizes how you know what people are going to do and how to counteract it that's just cool to see inside the mind of a fighter and shows off the expert training he's obviously received from sir roderick i do wonder how much we'll see of that going forward we get less and less since his return to the wall he obviously uses it up in the in the north, when he's with Corrin and when he's with the wild thing slightly, but then once he gets back, it's not really a big thing again. But you would think it, it is going to be needed again before the end of the series and the battles against the others. Although, John could stay in more of a commanding role. Perhaps even his death will have had some effect against his skills. You know, we can all assume that he's going to come back to life, but if something has actually been broken in his body, maybe he's not as good as a fighter. Although Barrack seemed to do just fine, so maybe not. We have this scene with uh, you know all of them meeting Sam, and there's a f- quite funny, cool scene with Pip and Gren discuss- discussing. You know they're horrified that Sam admits to being a craven. You know who would actually admit it? It's you know like a really dirty word to them, and that's a really good insight into the societal views of Westeros, and especially um, how they view. Being a man and what you're supposed to be, and the just the idea of even suggesting that they're afraid of anything is really abhorrent to them. It's really good looking. Now, I know Aziz mentioned, uh, got to the, some of this point. it's about John and Sam receiving kind of similar abuse, or both receive abuse at home. And Aziz he agrees with me that Sam's is much, much worse. Um, and I personally think it's because it's, it's way more public than John's ever was. You know, I don't think Catelyn ever made an example of John or explicitly um tried to embarrass him in front of anyone. You could say that him not being involved in the you know the high table at the feast is, is public embarrassment, but reading what Randall does to Sam is a really tough read um that's a lot more public and considering that Sam is firstborn and it's you know we know it's his Randall's son. It's just much, much worse because Sam's supposed to, in theory, eventually rule these people. And Thornhill, I mean, he's been put through all this stuff. At least John, you know, didn't ever think he'd be ruling anyone. And that's not to discount what John goes through, it's just a different type of abuse. Um, but maybe it actually opens John's eyes up a bit and that his problems aren't the worst in the world. Some people do have it worst. I don't know if John has the maturity to see it that way quite yet, but maybe. And it might just be playing into his removal, the removal of the stigma of being a bastard. Now, that doesn't quite come off for some time yet. John's always thinking about being a bastard. It never truly leaves him. But seeing someone that is true-born and a first son going through problems, it just it must say to John... Even if he had been born a true Stark, even if he had been, in quotes, Rob, that doesn't just make everything perfect. So maybe it just takes the the, the hurt or the sting out of being a bastard a little bit, knowing that everyone has problems, not just bastards. Speaking of Randall, it does occur to me that it's kind of a risky play just to send Sam up to the wall. We don't really get an instance where someone chooses not to say the vows of the Night's Watch and choose to, chooses to leave again. In theory, that is an option. Perhaps not physically, because you know Sam, the Horn Hill men that took him up there is presumably gone, and would Sam just be able to make his own way south? Probably not. But I'm sure in the history of the Night's Watch, people have refused and gone off. So if Randall is saying, well, I want rid of Sam, we want Dick on his air... Okay, fine. Sending him to the Night's Watch—that's a good idea. But there's still risk involved. It's a long way from Horn Hill to to Castle Black, and he doesn't—you know—take him months to know that Sam is actually there, or even, he might not even know that he's not said the vows. Sam could, in theory. I think we know that Sam, the Sam as he is, isn't going to do this, and I'm sure that's what Randall was assuming too. But in theory, Sam could have said no. He could have come back south and pressed a claim, or made things difficult. Or you know, what if Randall had died? While Sam was travelling north, and he'd come back and there was a claim against Dickon versus Sam. Like I say, no doubt Randall was confident. Sam was far too cowardly to not do what he was told. But it's just interesting to think of, especially about those recruits who choose not to say the vows, if indeed there are any. This new friendship and this new brotherhood between them, it does wonders for both Sam and John. You know, Sam is the project that Jon can focus on and it finally helps him move forward in his new life. We've talked about and you know Daenerys finds her thing to get immersed in the Dothraki and later we'll find Arya focusing on water dancing. And this is kind of what Jon needs. Jon needs someone to protect and someone to... It just means to take his mind off of being at the wall, basically. And that's what Sam provides for him. It's almost like he's a replacement for some of the Stark children... You know, he's a friend, like Rob, he's a similar age just as Rob Roz, Rob was. But he still needs protection like Aya slash Bran. He can still play the, fill their roles a bit. Gives something, it just makes the life at the wall seem a bit fuller for John. a bit more worth, something. you know, he, he's doing something good now, instead of just being the skivvy. All right, back to Edard then. This one is the, I'm going to call this one the the one with Tobho Mott. He, he really doesn't get enough of a highlights so let's provide him one by naming a chapter after him so this is that odd six where among other things um ned has a council meeting about the tourney he he travels through king's landing and eventually he arrives at Tobo mott's shop and meets mr gendry who again much like sam we're getting involved we're getting introduced to some major characters in this uh in today's podcast but gendry very important character as we will come to see now to me This chapter is actually really about House Baratheon and how all these brothers fit together and just figuring out the family as a whole. We've met Renly and Robert and we've spoken not a lot, but enough about Stannis that we've got a kind of an idea who he is. Um, But it's weird because it's focused on House Baratheon, but only Renly actually appears. All these Baratheons, you only actually get one or one and a half if you count Gendry. And I think Aziz mentioned this, but we've been thinking about Stannis and but as rereaders, it's really easy to see the the hole that Stannis leaves by not being in this book and in this chapter you know it's a vacuum Um I think that comes off even for first-time readers but certainly knowing what we know of Stannis as rereaders, the mind kind of boggles about what it would have been like if he actually was there and how much things would have changed but that's just for us to lament and wish about but for those first-time readers who aren't who, if they weren't sure before that this guy was having an effect was having an effect by missing out, they probably are convinced by the end of this chapter because it's laid out much more explicitly. So early on in the council meeting, we have Ned um, offering up his own men for the gold cloaks, which is you know, to shore up the city lines, and it's very noble and very Nedish. But as we know, with power of hindsight, it also weakens his position for later on. And it's another example of Ned not really using his position to the best of his abilities. Uh, Ned, he's, he's the type of guy, he would never ask something of someone that he isn't prepared to do himself. We know that about him. That's, we can draw a lot of examples of that. In this case, he could have just ordered someone else to supply men, but he won't because he can supply his own men. You know, He does ask for some more, but he doesn't actually have to give up his own guard. He could have easily just got replaced his uh, 20 or so men, whatever it is, with a command. And that kind of looks like an especially bad decision given that Sansa and Aya are still in the castle and they should keep guards as close as possible to them. Now again, that's hindsight, we can only blame Ned so much. But it shows us how he can't really see the rules outside the game. He, you know, just doesn't really have it in him to suspect Janos Slint or the Gold Cloaks. He has too much faith in the positions and the structure, to really, um, to really be guessing the extent of what could happen here. We come back to this in the Sansa chapters, but Picel mentions the advantages of uh, having a having attorney for the small folk, and you know how it uh, boosts their lives a bit, etc., etc. And Littlefinger adds the advantages of un- incoming coin and how that helps everyone out, but we know. He he's championing that bit because most of the coin comes straight back to him eventually, so it's a good example of everyone. No one cares about the tourney No one cares about the small focus. Just what they can get out of it. And um, and Littlefinger's pretty dead on there. Speaking of this small council meeting, we have Renly being not particularly nice, as he's mentioned my note about him calling Shireen ugly, and it's a bit revealing of Renly's true character. Um, now I think. You know, if Shireen had been there or if Renly thought Shireen was any use to him or anything, he'd be completely charming. Mm. So it does make you think about his interactions with Brienne and whether, you know, did he like like Brienne or she was just useful for him? Did he say nasty things to her after the fact or behind her back? We don't know, but we can make some guesses. And we spoke before about the relationship between Littlefinger and Renly and, you know, they kind of seem to get on. And I wonder if in some ways Littlefinger's mentoring Renly not, I don't think either of them would use that word, but maybe is just picking up some of Littlefinger's tendencies because they do seem to be pretty similar at this point. Moving on, there's some really cool descriptions. Moving on to Stannis, I'm, I mean. There's some really cool descriptions of the Siege of Storm's End in Robert's Rebellion, which is really, really super important for the development of Stannis' character and his backstory, and it also hints what he's going to be like when we meet him eventually in the series you know he's stubborn refuses to give up and you know he had that back then in the siege and he's going to have it again in the war of five kings and if we're looking at the Baratheon family the Baratheon brothers then we can compare Renly and Stannis here through, through the eyes of the siege because Renly is you know he's an attorney king he likes to play at war he's a boy of summer as Calling calls him you know, he's not really a veteran or of anything. Where Stannis, he was down in the mud and the grit at a younger age than Renly is now. So that really shows you the difference between the two brothers. And it gives us some more hints about Stannis's military prowess... ...and how that's going to play in later. And it also shows us how Ned and Stannis... ...they could have connected over something like Storm's End. If we switch Ned in, if we sub him in for Stannis during that siege... I think we can be damn sure Ned is absolutely the last person to eat anything in that castle. He would have made sure everyone else was fed first. I don't know if we can go that far for Stannis, but he definitely suffered along with his men. It's not like he was keeping the food up in his chambers and letting everyone else starve. No chance. He was starving as well. He was the same as the men he was serving. as one of the troops. Uh, don't Can we say Renly would do the same in that situation? No, I don't think so and we can look at the after effects of Storm's End as well it's really what kicks off the chain of disrespect and the lack of recognition that forms the status that we know. Um, you know first he doesn't really get thanked or recognised for saving Storm's End and then he goes and claims Dragonstone in Robert's name, still nothing no you know, thank yous and then um, I think it's Fair Isle in the Greyjoy Rebellion where he smashes the fleet, allows robert's forces to take pike apparently nothing for that either so it's all this build up of years and years stannis does a lot let's let's be fair for robert doesn't really get any credit and that eventually burns into resentment which is the exact reason why he isn't present in this chapter or book so they mention storm's end and in doing so really tell us why stannis is absent uh, i think as he got to this as well my note about the, the Braffin brothers if they had been able to kind of put ego aside and just rule together if you imagine Robert naming Stannis Hand and Renly well whatever but if Renly had kind of been a de facto hand as well if they'd been able to rule as a three with their different personalities and their different strengths they really could have accomplished a lot now Shea uh, um countered by saying that their styles would clash so much that so maybe they wouldn't get a lot done that's certainly true if they were still ruled by ego and um, you know, their way had to be the only way. Then obviously they would, they would clash a lot and get even less done than they do now. But in a perfect world, if they had been able to really be like, no, if we actually work together and listen to each other, you know, they've got all bases covered. But anyway, the point I had a further note in that there's it's not a direct comparison, but we can kind of see this three-way power balance in the original conquerors. You know, for Robert, we can compare with Aegon 1st he's got the name, the power, he's the one who men and lords flock to, and he's the one who wins the battle, it's not just him, but you know he gets the credit. Whereas Renly is a lot more like Rainey's. everyone likes her, she's pretty cheery, um, just a lot more fun to be around. We can definitely draw comparisons between Stannis and Visenya, because no one really liked Visenya, and they used to say all these horrible things about her because she was kind of darker, morose but in a lot of instances she was the one who got the job done she kind of saved Aegon's behind a few times Um, and much like we've just said Stannis got a lot done so there's a certain comparison there we can even flip it and look to the future and this this three-headed dragon that everyone's talking about or at least the three final people that might be involved in ruling if we, if we go ahead and assume that's Daenerys and John and Tyrion, okay, so, ironically, uh, Daenerys, given her hatred, ironically, Daenerys would be Robert. She's got the name, she's got all the thousands of people loyal to her. Tyrion would be the Renly, and in this case, not so much in the looks department, but the politics and the, um, the little fingerish aspects of Renly's personality. And Certainly, people have made a lot of comparisons, rightly, between Jon and Stannis before. The the cold man dressed in black puts honour and duty above all else. There's a lot to be said there for Jon and Stannis. So maybe the Baratheons could have been what will be, or maybe it won't be, who knows. And I wonder, these these clear divides that we see between the Baratheons, how much of that is down to uh, Stefan Baratheon, their father, or Kasana, as to want their mother, Who's to say? It's absolutely impossible. We don't have enough information. Maybe they were a lot for pitting brother against brother. And we're probably talking more Robert Stannis here because they're close for an age than Renly. Um, perhaps they're responsible a lot. Perhaps not at all. Perhaps they were perfect parents and this, this is just how it goes. Who's to say? Now we get to travel through the city proper in this chapter. Back in Catelyn's early chapter uh, where she first arrives at the inn, we didn't really get too much description. But in this one... Ned travels through the more slum-like streets of King's Landing, and then he gradually makes his way to the smarter parts higher up on the hill where the merchants and the um, artificers, artificers, artificers live. And, you know, that gives us a good idea of how King's Landing is set out, and I think because he's got to list that, pretty cool, Weirwood doors. I just We always like any mention of Weirwood, I think, all of us. Um, Tob Homot, I won't go on about him too much because Aziz did a good job of talking about him but he, it seems that he has important knowledge of Valerian Steel and we don't know whether maybe some of that has passed down to Gendry might be important for the endgame that's certainly how it appeared in the show, who knows and like the earlier Ned chapter where we had Pycelle listing off his achievements Tob Homot does the exact same thing Gets, uh, I make this and that and I do this and that and again, we have to wonder, is that a deflection technique? It seems like Topo is quite fond of Gendry. He's probably aware of Cersei's views on Robert's Bastards and that he needs to keep it quiet. So maybe he'd rather keep Ned's, uh, Ned's eye on him instead of Gendry. Maybe he'd rather even beat uh, Gendry and then enrage the hand. But who's to say? But at least later on, we kind of get evidence that they had a good relationship because way far later in Storm, you know, Gendry is still defending Topo Mart and his master so that's pretty cool to see so I think we've got two left, there's a really important one next, Catlin 5 the one where she catches Tyrion there's no other name for it, that's that's how this chapter is known for good reason because this is the moment the war began in a lot of ways Um, certainly there are other places we can point to if we want to drop that at their door but this is one of the most popular because it really does kick off a lot of stuff. Um we can see Ned's orders on strategy for protecting the north, the ones that he said during Catelyn and Ned's goodbye previously. They've they leak through to this chapter. Catelyn at the beginning, she's thinking in terms of wartime, even before Tyrion comes along. She's aware that the Starks can't stand alone and they need they're gonna need allies. She's thinking very much there's trouble ahead. Although she's also still filling that uh, family role, the mother role. She wants to go to Riverrun and protect that, uh, her family there. Maybe some of that also is why she looks east to Lysa. Even though she never says, I want to go and protect Lysa, that might still be figuring into her mind a lot. I think it's important that I, I tell you, I've never really brought into... The fact that catelyn started a war this chapter might be where it began but i don't think catelyn started it personally you can see that because she actively tries to avoid interacting with Tyrion, um and is kind of scuppered by one of the more annoying characters in the series Marillion, but she tries to avoid all this and is just kind of cornered by Circumstance in the end, she's forced into a corner. She also has a lot of worries about messages and ravens and riders being intercepted, not just in this chapter but some of her other earlier chapters. There's a lot of sense to that, but doing something as huge as arresting Tyrion Lannister, I think, should have really been communicated with messages to River Run and Winterfell, be it rider or raven, whatever's available. I'd take King's Landing too, but it's much more understandable to be worried about interception in that direction. But with something this big, if. And I think probably everything is too caught up in the tides of destiny with her capturing of Tyrion to change much. But maybe if word had got there before things really kick off, things might have changed. Maybe. Maybe. Who's to say? I suppose those orders from Ned for fortification, they kind of end here. Or they're at least delayed enough to make no matter. I'm really interested by how much would have changed if those orders for fortification had got through. Ned says keep an eye on Theon. Now, who's to say whether keep an eye on Theon translates into don't send him to treat with Balon or don't take himself in the first place, who knows? But a lot of stuff got to change there, a lot of big stuff. But I'm actually more interested in a fortified white harbour and thinking about that. I wonder, does Wyman Manderly take orders for fortifying... To include raising a fleet. Because if the Starks have any kind of sea power. And I'm not the one to. I oh know Brenda B. Fish, I'm not the one to talk about. How this is all going to affect a war. But I, I like—I still like to think about it. If they have any kind of sea power. The war radically changes. In my opinion. They maybe they don't have to rely. On making promises to world a fray. To cross the river. Maybe they can use their ships. Possibly not if they really want to get into River Run in that direction, so maybe not in that case. But later on, they can get back above the neck during Storm of Swords to uh, take back the north. Maybe they can even treat with Lysa by landing at Goldtown and going through the Vale of Arran instead of trying to get through the mountains of the moon and through Tywin. There's too many, too many uh, interwoven threads really to pick apart there, it's at least by a mind such as mine, but it's. Uh, it's cool to think about I do think we can at least say that most importantly King's Landing they would have forced King's Landing to think about naval attacks from two different sources really would have piled the pressure on Tyrion and Cersei there so at least it's something to think about finally then Sansa 2 the one with the tourney, among other things I mean, the and the season show really got to a lot on this so I do still have some to get through, so let's finish off this uh, this episode today. You might notice that the chapter, it skips over a lot of Sansa's dealing with the loss of Lady. But it's kind of surprising, but by this time it has been quite a few chapters since Lady's death, and it's kind of covered in an earlier Aya chapter about how upset Sansa is. I think at this point we would have just bogged down the pacing if George had dragged that up again, so it's just kind of bad to get on with it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Pycelle says this to Ned, and the the general thinking among Tawny organisers or society in general is that the tourneys, they are the event for the small folk and some of the lesser nobility, the higher nobility too, but they're kind of tricking the lesser nobility more. You know, it's the Oscars of Westeros, it's the playoffs by way of interme- by way of entertainment. It's pretty much all the small folk and the lesser nobles. They have. it's all they get for maybe a year, maybe more. And we're talking about one here. This hands tourney. It's not even really that large compared to the ones that we know from history and legend. It nothing really that big happens from an outside view. It doesn't really seem like it's going to be committed to the ages of memory like others are. It's not. You know what? What is there to remember from an out- outsider's perspective? Really, you know, Loris. He upsets Gregor again. That's quite a good story. That's about it really. And we can say that the Tourney, the tournaments, they're all empty glory. They are a representation of this face value, like the songs that Sansa is fond of, and eventually finds out that they are paper thin. And we can we find out eventually that the tournament and its fortunes are as well. We later find out that Angai, he wins the um the archery. But he blows all of his winnings away. The jousting is won by Sandor again. Hate and yet he hates everything honourable and Turley-like, so that's kind of a waste. The melee is won by um, Forest of Mere, and he doesn't take fame out of it. He becomes a bandit, lives under a hill. Slightly stronger in Forest's case, but we can see the point that all the all of what's promised in the tourney doesn't really come true. We can, not just the winners, but most of those in attendance, they all, most of them die once the real war starts. This is all just playing as a game, as I'm sure other people have said before. And It's just a representat- representation of a paper-thin piece that is Robert Baratheon's reign. It's all It all seems fine if we just glance, if this is 200 years later and you look at the reign of Robert, Robert Baratheon, it seems pretty fine But it was all paper-thin the whole time and obviously we find out what that leads to in clash and storm and going forwards for this for the, for sansa specifically this is the this is her life raft we've talked today about daenerys who finds her way into the dothraki jon up on the wall he's got fighting he's got sam and his other brothers they in, they make his life a lot earlier easier arya finds water dancing that's her thing but this is for sansa now the the difference is that Arya keeps water dancing, Jon keeps fighting and he mainly keeps his relationship with his brothers. Daenerys keeps that immersion within the Dothraki at least until she moves on. But for Sansa, her focus actually eventually betrays her, turns out to be f- false and is something to be hated. So she's, she's a bit separate from these other Starks and uh, other children finding their way. Having said that, she is still able to focus and kind of draw her own benefits and power from the the nobility side, the game side so it's not to say it's a complete waste I noticed Jamie he stuck out to me in this chapter he's got his gold armour on which I think there's some symbolism for his family, obviously they're obsessed with the colour gold representing their money and not to say that Jamie is as much as the rest of his family but still and it seems to be a sign that he's different from the rest of his Kings Kingsguard brothers they obviously have their white armour Jamie's in his gold And he's just set apart because he actually broke his vow long ago. I think that's a little nod to that. More importantly, I think it's a sign of how Cersei has her claws in Robert. Why why should Jaime be allowed special armor? Why is he so special? I can't remember off the top of my head if Loras... Does he have green armor later? Maybe he does, but it's just one of those hints that Cersei kind of gets what she wants some other quick links for the eagle-eyed first-time readers. Uh, two links to the past, both recent and then a bit further back. Mainly Gregor Glane, his appearance just reminds us who he is and his deal in Robert's Rebellion, just shoring up these world-building stories from George. And the Royces also appear again, which takes us a little bit further back to the prologue and Sir Waymar. And the Royces obviously have a big role still to come in Sansa's storyline. She's with uh, Miranda still and very much involved in the Vale where there's a lot going on with the Royce, with uh, with House Royce. So maybe her um, meeting them and Wins, maybe this will refer back to this moment where she interacts with them again. Like I said, there's the Foros, Foros of Mir. He appears in this chapter. We get his first sighting. And uh, here's physical physical description from sansa it's very difficult to the visible description that aya gives when she meets him he's changed his um, body type a lot in the time between now Thoros appearing again sets up some more Stannis' storyline even if we don't know it now because Thoros is really our introduction to the red god the i don't think it really gets much of a mention otherwise in game of thrones i'd have to check that But also he shows us that flaming swords or shining swords can just be a cheap trick, which is quite important to Stannis' storyline and Lightbringer. And that's extra special when we consider the connection between Foros and Melisandre being that they're both the same religion. Maybe that religion really just likes cheap sword tricks. Who knows? Maybe that's in their manifesto, so to speak. I've said about Angai, I've mentioned Foros, There's lots and lots of brotherhood heard Without Banners vibes in this chapter we see Forrest like I say Beric is there, Anguy wins the archery, Harwin is present this is like a little teaser of what's to come and to be fair the whole tourney section where Sansa is recognising all these different people of certain houses and these different players in the game it's like one big roll call for events that will happen later and uh, I think Aziz went through what happened to most of them and for the most part it's not not good news Jane Poole, she accompan- accompanies Sansa on uh, this visit to the tourney, and she sees Beric Dondarrion and is ready to marry him. She falls head over heels. Now, we find out much later, he's already betrothed to a Dane woman, uh, we find out in Storm. We might find out before that, but it's definitely mentioned in Storm. And that's a pretty odd betrothal, if you think about it. House Dondarrion, right on the Dornish marches, so they've been fighting and hating the Dornish for hundreds and hundreds of years. So for there to be a um, betrothal between that house and Dornish house, that's quite strange. I hope we that's something we find out more about, but given Beric's where he ends up, maybe not. Maybe Edric Dane comes back, who knows. Going on through these smaller characters, Septimor Dane, she doesn't have a great day at the office, does she? Um, her Makes a pretty nasty comment about Jory, it's pretty beneath her, gets a bit drunk. Um, not that it really matters in the grand scheme of things but it is a good example of George making even kind of tertiary characters like Septimort dame three dimensional and and real he could have easily left her to be bland and flat it's not like she has that big of a effect on any of the plot but instead he adds these faults and these personality traits to her also because all these characters seem so real to us on to Sir Hugh and his appearance in the chapter I wonder if uh, Hugh is uh, supposed to be a play on words of who. Sir Hugh? Doesn't matter. He dies soon. Yeah, pretty much that is the story of Sir Hugh. He's the signal of what's going to happen to most of these young men. There's going to be no song sang for them. and um, I think Sandra actually thinks that. That's pretty indicative of nearly everyone present. Like I said, not a lot of people end up coming out of the other side of the war in good standing. They're not gonna do any great deeds, they're not gonna be remembered. They're mostly just gonna die in a war that didn't need to be fought, even though at this on this day they're all they're all up for it and thinking of glory and pretend games and pretend war and all of that. And Hugh really is the summer knight. He's just a boy playing dress up and you know, someone's just slapped the title of knight on him, that's supposed to be enough, and yet he dies as soon as he comes up against something real. And it makes us wonder, it's one of those many many things that we get to just think about what could have happened in A Song of Ice and Fire and you wonder what story Sir Hugh might have told Ned if he'd lived long enough. Who knows, tough to say, might have been no help at all. Sansa, she seems to hit on pretty much every emotion through the course of this chapter such as the curse of being a pre-teen. You know, She's excited for the tawny, she kind of fills head over heels much like Jane did, um, but it, in this case, for Loras, she sees her first death and it, weird feelings there. We go through the whole rainbow. Now, I, I take the tourney as the beginnings of George's anti-war message. We all know he's very anti-war and that obviously comes through in, in the series as it goes on. And this is the beginning because he does show both sides of the coin and the bad is obviously going to come later quite a, quite, quite heavily. But first, he presents the pretty song version with all the, like I just said, the glamour and the war games and why um, these young people—and not all of them are young—but these these people seek it out in, in in such a fashion. And the tourney also goes some way to send a message to the small folk that fighting is really important, and that's why you know you can just see this is why we knights and soldiers should get more money and power because look how important we are. Look, we'll have this tourney so you can see how talented and skilled we are and how you should be giving up your money and Sandy gets gets caught up in all this as she would as a teenage girl she's been thirsting for this kind of entertainment for a while and there's really nothing comparable in the north but again it is just a trick for the small folk, if you think of the amount of money on the line um, a tenth or a hundredth or more of it would be life changing completely life changing for all of these small folk and yet here the upper class are gambling at gambling that life-changing fortune on where an arrow or lance lands or who's got the strongest arm on the day and more than that the trick is so good that the small folk actually cheer for it which really says a lot about the the structure of society in in westeros at this time we also have my final notice it's renly versus sandor they face off against each other in this chapter which is a great parallel for you know Beauty versus ugly. Renly often often said how he has a particular interest in looking good and kind of the fashion for it. And Sandor is obviously the antithesis of that with his burned face and he's not doesn't care what he wears, etc., etc. And but ugly wins. Ugly defeats beautiful, and that really really enforces that early lesson of Sansa's and that what we were saying earlier about paper thin. And what does the king look like? And all these these themes that George is just hammering down at early in this first half of Game of Thrones and there you have it everybody that's uh, that's part 5 of Valor Aurelius part 5 of 11 so basically halfway through the book now and that was scraps and scrolls with all the extra notes from uh, History of Westeros' live feed now Aziz and share, they are hang on I just need to prepare myself so I don't sound jealous at all they're off to Connor kind of Thrones in Nashville, so next week, the 14th, uh, that's the Sunday, I mean, is an off day for them, so we will have no Valor Aredis next week, obviously, because there's no extra notes to go through, but then I believe after that there's a good solid month before there's another gap, so you'll get lots, lots through there and, um, yeah, like I said earlier, we've got our Patreon now, and one of the rewards for certain tiers is getting Valor Aredis a day early because uh, from now on, They'll probably be coming out on Wednesday, Thursday, for uh, non-patron listeners. So give our patron a look, and if you are going to Con of Thrones*, I'm not going to swear at you, but I'm, I'm, you know what I'm thinking. All right, no, have a, have a good time. Say hello to everyone, for us. The other faces' wishes it could be there. Maybe one day, maybe one day, me and Lady Buckley will steal a robo or something. Get some lessons off Gendry anyway, that was part five with our seven chapters. Say hello again soon. We'll be back with, like I say, all this Patreon stuff. Shakes of Thrones, we'll record it later. That'll be with you very soon. And uh, yeah, have a good week, everybody. We'll see you soon.